welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And before we get started, it's June. It's my birthday month. And for my birthday this year, I'm asking for donations for the Year of Polygamy podcast. If this podcast has been meaningful to you in any way, go to yearofpolygamy.com. There's a donate page. Donate and make a contribution to the podcast. Show me that you care. Show me that you appreciate the work that we're doing over here. Now, today I have a really fun interview coming up. I say fun because the guest that I interview is a comedian, an up-and-coming comedian who grew up in a fundamentalist community. You might know him as King Benjamin on TikTok. Ben Brown has graciously shared his story with us, and he is also going to be performing at the Sunstone Symposium which is happening July 27th through the 30th. I, of course, am the executive director of Sunstone, which is an open forum for Mormon issues. And everyone's invited. You don't have to be Mormon. You don't have to be a believing Mormon, but you can be. And you're invited to come. So register at sunstone.org and you can see Ben perform his set at Sunstone. Now, I'm giving this little opening because usually I give some content warnings or trigger warnings if there's heavy themes of sexual violence or we're talking about things that you really shouldn't have kids in the room for. Today is not an interview of that nature, but I am giving a language warning. And in some ways, it feels kind of silly to do that on podcasts because most of us are adults here, but you never know with the internet who's listening. Our guest today is a comedian and he sometimes uses comedian language. And I didn't edit it out because like I do with many of my guests, I allow them to share their story. I've been criticized for not pushing back sometimes on some of my guests for some of their beliefs, but it's not its not a sense of cowardness. It might be rooted in a little bit of Mormon um, avoidance of conflict, but really I just try to take people where they're at when they're telling their story, believe them when they tell me things, and I try to take their beliefs as seriously as they do when I interview them. And it's no different for a comedian and the language and story that he uses today. This is Ben's story. It's not my story. When people come on my show and they tell me all the good things that fundamentalism has done for them, I don't correct them. I might push back and encourage them to explore that a little bit. But again, it's their story, not mine. And so I do that with all my guests. So today is Ben Brown. And if you have little ones in the room, know that there are some F words in this podcast. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Drop a donation at yourpolygamy.com. I'm so excited to welcome on Ben Brown. You might know him as King Benjamin on TikTok. He's a comedian. Uh, he's really, really funny. We're going to have him come to Sunstone this this summer. So if you really want to see um, what he has to offer, you've got to come see him in person. But Ben, I'm so excited to have you on. Can you say hello? Oh my gosh, Lindsay, I'm so excited to be here. Hello, everyone. Okay, so you're kind of a TikTok breakout star. It, it's funny because <laughs> I had, oh golly, I had probably like five or six people send me your TikTok videos after. Oh, under really? Heaven. Yeah, you were doing Under the Banner of Heaven reviews and everyone's like, you got to talk to this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's been really fun. Let's get into it. Let's talk about who you are and what your story is, because you have kind of a fascinating story. So I want I want to back up at the very beginning. Tell us your sort of Mormon bona fides. That's what that's what we like. Okay, to yeah, I I can I can give you my Mormon uh, royalty, and I I come from I come from good Mormon stock. Uh, so my my great 
I don't even know how many. My great something, several somethings grandfather was a dude named Ebenezer Brown. And he joined the Mormon in like 1834. And so he was like hardcore right at the very beginning. And then he, what's interesting. So, so the, the thing that's kind of unique about me right now is that I come from a Mormon polygamous background that that's a little bit different from kind of 90% of Mormons are not, are not really associated with polygamy at all. So that's kind of one of the interesting things about my story, but that started way back then. So Ebenezer Brown was not only one of the first first people to join the church. He was also one of the first people to practice polygamy and him and like his descendants, they did that basically down until the LDS church stopped practicing polygamy in 1890. So like they came West, they like Ebenezer Brown went with the Mormon battalion. We hear a lot about that at like family reunions. And then my family, when, when the LDS church stopped practicing plural marriage in like 1890, uh, my family stopped doing it too. So they kind of went with the, the LDS church. And when the polygamists were sort of breaking off at that point, they didn't go with the polygamists. They went with the LDS church. They were LDS for like the next hundred years, right? So into the modern era, right up until my uh, dad and my dad, he did some studying and actually was introduced to him by his mom. So it was like his parents and him when, when he was an adult, they started uh, researching the, the deeper doctrines of the church and they looked around and they looked at the church that they were in right then, which was the modern, you know, uh, LDS church in the late eighties, uh, which is actually kind of fascinating because it's the LDS church that you guys portray so well in under the banner of heaven. Like that's the world that my family lived in. And then they started studying the deeper mysteries and they were like, oh, the current LDS church doesn't look anything like what we find when we read the deeper doctrines, right? When we actually look at what Joseph Smith said and actually look at what Brigham Young said. The LDS church doesn't do a whole bunch of those things. And one of the most you know, prime examples of that was polygamy. And so they were like, okay, we have to live polygamy. That's commanded by God. And so they started looking around, trying to find the authority to practice polygamy. And they, they thought that they found it in the what, what was called the Apostolic United Brethren, which is, is shortened by the AUB. Um, and that's what, that's one of the bigger sects of uh, Mormon polygamy. It's, it's kind of like right underneath the FLDS and they joined that before I was born. And when my dad joined, he, when he was like looking, he had a fiance and they, he, she converted too. And then they also felt at the same time that they were supposed to find like another wife before uh, they got married. And so uh, they went to college and when they were at college, my dad portrayed himself as a single man. And he went and he dated, like he went to like the singles ward in the LDS church and he found my mom and she was 19. He was 26. And he kind of like swept her off her feet and then told her that he was part of this secret inner group of the true LDS church. And did she want to be a part of that? And of course she did because everyone wants to be part of the, of the inner ring. And she'd been raised in Mormonism her whole life where, she, where it had been really commonly taught that eventually uh, we were going to live polygamy again. And so she was like, this makes sense. I've now been chosen by, because I'm so righteous <laughs> to join a polygamous family. So I'm going to do that. And when she did that, she was like cut off from her family. I want to get into your, to your family story, but let's, let's not give away the ending just yet. Okay. Back up and, and talk about your, your childhood. Let's, let's start okay. there. I want to, then I want to ask you a lot of questions about your dad and, and that whole situation. Cause that's fascinating. 
Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So fast, fast forward, I'm born um, in Mormon polygamy and I'm, and it, and, and like a couple of years after I'm born, like I'm born in, in Montana and my dad and my mom and my other mom all kind of like bounce around for a little bit. And then they end up on a ranch on my family's ranch in Wyoming. And, and that's where, so when I tell people that I grew up on a Mormon polygamous compound, what I'm talking about is there's a ranch in Wyoming that was five miles outside of town. And we had a bunch of trailers on that ranch and, and it was a bunch of polygamists and there were kids and we just like hung out on the ranch all the time. You said Montana, were you up in Pinesdale with the AUB? Where, yeah. Where okay. So the, not, not actually. So, so I can get kind of specific. So, cause you, you know this. <laughs> so yeah. So Pinesdale is part of the AUB. My family was in Billings and they were just kind of like there for, they were there for, for work for like a year. And then they ended up in Wyoming and they kind of became the, the focal point there, there's a big AAUB branch in Wyoming. There's probably right now around, there's probably around 150 people. And, and my, my parents were sort of the, the focal point of that. Okay. So in Billings, that's, that's interesting. And this highlights something that I've been trying to tell people on the podcast. Mormon polygamists are everywhere. Yes. They're compounds. Everywhere. Yeah. There are these like concentrations of it, but really, I mean, you you guys are just living your life in Billings. Let's start there. So, uh, in Billings, how would people have experienced, uh, your family Would did they seem normal? Did they live in a normal house? What was that? like? So, no. So we, we lived in a, we lived in a trailer park and we, my, my parents lived in one trailer. So th- this was when I was very young. I was like a, I was like a, just a little baby. But at that point, the way that they sort of portrayed themselves to the world is they didn't really want people to know that they were polygamist. And so they, but, but they were also like, they did live, I'm sure their neighbors saw stuff, but like when dad went to work, he probably, he would, he would have my mom as his official wife. And when they would like go on vacation, there's actually this story that they tell that, that is uh, kind of funny. It actually is. I think it's pretty funny. I have to be careful because I've done, I've done a significant amount of trauma therapy and that all started because I would tell people things that I thought were funny, but actually weren't. But I'm pretty sure that what I'm about to tell you is actually funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we were very little, um, so my, my dad had, uh, I'm my, my mom's oldest and my dad got married to my mom and my other mom right at the same time. And they had kids right at the same time. So my, my, I have a brother who's 13 days older than me. He's basically my twin. Right. And, uh, which is actually kind of funny because we were both, we're both Gemini's. So like we actually are twins, which is kind of hilarious, but, uh, we would go, we went to like a, on a family vacation to like Yellowstone and the whole family was like me, my, my brother, I'm like six months old, my dad, his two wives, and then my other mom's older, older son from another marriage. And we're like, walking around old faithful and my dad has both of like has me and has my brother Ammon right so it looks he's holding two babies we're we're basically twins right and he's getting just like all of this attention from these people who are like oh my god they're so cute like are they twins and my dad has this really interesting relationship with the truth where if it's if it's like letting someone believe that you can that you're uh that you have the authority to like baptize them into a secret LDS polygamous cult. He'll like let you believe that even though he doesn't. But if he, if someone asks you if your babies are twins and they're not, he's not going to tell a lie. And so like my moms are like, he should, he should say yes, that they're twins because otherwise they're going to know that we're polygamous. And, 
And my dad's like, no, well, they're 13 days apart. And then all of the women around are, are just like, grown. they're like, oh my God. Because apparently they all thought that it was one mom who'd been in labor for 13 days. Like this right. one woman like put her hand on her belly and was like, I was in labor for 12 hours. I can't imagine 13 days. <laughs> okay, that is a funny story. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, first of all, you're not the only one that's alone in the, in the trauma funny game, you know. Okay. Oh, we, we all do that, but depending on which group you uh, grew up in, I have a friend that's in the Kingston group. And every time he tells us his childhood memories, we're all laughing about our stories. And then he'll, he'll, he'll talk about right. his childhood and we're, we, the room stops and we're like, oh my gosh, right. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I know. Um, uh, yeah. But it's especially sad. It's especially sad because usually when you're sharing, when you're the person who's sharing that, it's usually at a moment when you're pretty excited, like everyone's sharing a funny story and you're like, oh my God, I have a, I finally have a funny story to contribute. And then it just kills the mood and everyone's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's, that's Mormonism. That's Mormonism for you. So, okay. So you guys uh, moved from Billings to Wyoming. So talk about, talk about the good old home compound. Okay. So the good old home compound, um, so that that all is sort of revolving around a, an attempt by my family to live the United Order, right? So one of the things about fundamentalist Mormons, where, wherever they come from, is that like if they're FLDS or AUB or just like they're just doing their own thing, is they're all trying to live this this pure and original form of Mormonism that they believe that the real church, that the LDS church has fallen away from. And so a lot of that is polygamy, but another big one for the AUB and especially for my family is this idea of the United Order, which is essentially that it's essentially like Christian communism, right? It's the idea that we're all going to work together as a, as a, as a Mormon community and we're going to hold property in common and we're going to build each other up. We're going to take care of each other. And so my family initially moved to Wyoming. We initially ended up in Riverton where we moved on to like a dairy farm with another kind of smaller group of, of uh, members of the AUB. And we, they like tried to make a United Order thing kind of go there. I don't know what happened. All I know is that it didn't work. And so at that point, they left Riverton and they moved back up to my family's ranch in Wyoming. So that ranch had been there. that has been in the family for like 100 years. So in, in like 18, oh, geez, probably like 18 something, like 1897 or something, uh, another Ebenezer Brown. Uh, descendant, he was asked by the prophet of the, he was one of like, the, uh, he was a, one of a mission that was sent out. You know how Brigham Young was like sending people out to populate different places. He went, got sent up to help start, start a town called Lovell in, uh, in Wyoming. And he's got this ranch and that's where my family grew up. And so we were, I mean, when we moved out, when we moved out there, there were probably, there was like my grandpa and his three wives and my dad and his two wives. And then sometimes there would be other members of my dad's family who would move back in with, with various numbers of like children or wives. But any, at any time, it was, probably, it was probably 20 or 30, like 20 to 30 people. And about half of those people were kids. And we just, and there, there were various degrees, right? So, so like my, 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 grandpa, my grandma and her kids 
they, some of them would go to high school. So they would like leave and go out and go to high school. But my family didn't. My family didn't go to elementary school. We didn't go to school at all. We very rarely went into town. We had church in like another, another polygamous neighbor's garage. And so the world that I grew up in was really, really small. It was, it was like May tops 50 people. And the only real interaction I had with the outside world is that a couple, like a couple times a month, my mom would take me into the, the library and we would, I would like be able to check out some books and we'd like kind of, I'd, I'd see the town, right. I'd see at the stoplight, we'd like go to the store, but it was always very like the energy of it was be quiet, be sneaky, don't be seen because if people noticed you, then they might ask questions. And if they ask questions, they might find out that we're polygamist. And if they find out that we're polygamist, they might take you away from us. And we don't want that to happen. So we need to just kind of like fly under the radar. Don't be noticed. Don't be seen. And that was the energy that I grew up kind of feeling towards the outside world is the outside world is scary. The outside world is, is evil. And it's actually after us, right? It's not even just a benign, like, it's like evil out there. Like it's evil and it's coming to get us if we're not careful. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did, when was your earliest conception or moment when you knew that you were different? Than yeah. Other? So, yeah. So at one point we, we went to, I can't remember exactly how old I was because I don't have good, like, I, I, I don't, I assume that other people, they kind of remember things in like grades, like this happened in first grade or this happened in, you know, sixth grade or whatever. And I don't have that. So I don't have a good, I don't have a strong conception of like, a timeline of how old I was when things happened when I was young. But I, I think that I was around six and we went to a, we went to like a, a community sign language class at the, at like the elementary school library. And it was a, one of those very fun kind of rare opportunities where we could like go and like do something. And so it was like all of the kids from the compound, like we all went out there and we had like this class with this. Uh, in fact, I think it might've just been us. I think my, my family may have like specially arranged it, but it was like this sign language teacher who, I don't even know what, why she was there or why she was in town. It doesn't really like, she was just there. She was doing a class. And during the class, she was talking, she was teaching us the sign for like father, mother, sister, brother, like right, the family signs. And I wanted to ask, I was like, okay, well, I have two moms. So how do I sign my other mother, right? So the way that I referred to my, 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 there was like my mom and then there was my other mother who I called mother and then her name, right? So I won't say her name, but like mother Alice, if, if that was her name. And so I was like, how would I sign mother Alice, right? How would I say, how would I say my other mother in sign language? And the, the teacher was kind of like, I don't know, kind of like, kind of like threw her for a loop. And she like, she was like, maybe you would do this. And it was like, it was a good enough answer that I was like, cool, I get it. Like there's a, there's like, I, at that point I sort of knew, I was like, this is a bit of a different, but it's not a bad different. It's just, this is who I am. And I'm, I'm asking this question. But then when we got, when we left, I got into big trouble. So I, I got like the, the parents were very angry with me because it was like, no, you are not supposed to draw that kind of attention to us. What if she would have, what if she would have asked for more? What if, and this is like back in the early nineties, right? So in early nineties, polygamy is still illegal in Utah. It is, it's illegal in Wyoming. And so there's a really real fear that they, that my parents had that they were going to be, and they kind of like distilled that, that they were going to be, you know, they'd get in trouble with the law. 
which given what happened later, uh, probably should have happened. But like as an adult now, I can kind of see it. And that's one of the tricky things now about, I think, the relationship that that the world of Mormon fundamentalism has with the modern world is that there is real harm happening, right? There is real child abuse. There is real neglect happening in these places, but it's of a nature that it makes it very difficult for us to know exactly how to, how to alleviate it. How do we actually, cause it's, it's happening in a very different way. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that's an important part for people to understand why these laws kind of, I mean, Yes, the beliefs contribute to putting people in a bad position and, and lying for the Lord and all of that, but it is a complicated tension. And mm-hmm. what, like you said, your dad has an interesting relationship with truth. I mean, it's such an interesting Mormon critique of integrity to begin with. You know, we see our, even in the mainstream LDS church, LDS leaders like Gordon B. Hinckley, who will go on the news and you know, talk about polygamy and say, I don't know that we teach that, you know, we have this yeah. way in how we talk about these deeper doctrines, but then, you know, we're taught these lessons of if you're at Walmart and they undercharge you 98 cents, go back and pay that. 98. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's here are all very... the tax loopholes that the church is going to take, you know, right. so it's complicated. Yeah, it's, this, it's this very micro, this very micro morality. Of like we're gonna met we're gonna be hyper fixated on just these little details that don't really matter, right? Like it's a nice thing, it's a super nice thing to do to go back and like and and like say, hey, I was I I was undercharged by fifteen cents, right? That's a really nice thing to do. In the grand scheme of things, it's not really that big of a deal. It's fifteen cents. So especially especially when we're talking about like it, <laughs> corporations, right? It makes sense that the right. church would be like. We need to make sure corporations get their oh, <laughs> totally. Oh my God. That's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this, it's a really interesting, it's been an interesting ride for me because I've, I've been able to kind of go from sort of the, not the deepest part of Mormonism, but a pretty deep part and sort of and my exit all the way out. I've sort of been able to see it at all of its different layers. And it's, and that I think is one of the things that is so that as I've been watching, like under the banner of heaven, that I think that, that you guys did so well is that you're able to sort of tie that thread to sort of say, look, even though 90% of Mormons are really lovely people who are never going to do anything that's really going to harm someone, there's this thread that runs all the way through that belief system that if you pull it just right, it, it's pretty scary. And and I've experienced that, right? Like my, my parents got the thread pulled just right that they ended up living on a compound and labor trafficking their 15 children. Well, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about your, your childhood in Wyoming, what that was like. Uh, did you go to school? Did you, let's talk about all the child labor in your back. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so I didn't, I didn't attend school. We, we did homeschool. And I say, I like it. I always use air quotes when I say that because it was my mom and like, and my mom, uh, is a lovely woman. And I, I, I think she's like, I have a lot of love and care for her, but she also like didn't graduate college and her, her highest level of education has been, you know, a high, high school. And then, and she's been primarily charged with homeschooling most of our, our, in fact, all of the siblings. Right. And so, 
I've talked to, uh, there are a couple of others who have followed me out and I've talked to all of them and they're like, yeah, we didn't, we had a shitty education. And it was like, an, an example is my, my high school math education was mom handing me an algebra two textbook and saying, go learn algebra. And what I learned is that the answers are in the back of the book. And so now I know algebra. It's actually great. I can, I can solve all the algebra that I need. And so that was kind of like the schooling. But what, what ended up happening is that my parents had this belief that, so they believe in the, the last days, right? The calamities are upon us. And during the last days, when everything is destroyed, uh, the righteous are going to need a place of refuge to gather, right? Which is a pretty, that's a pretty Mormon idea, right? That's not just Mormon polygamous. A lot of Mormons believe, believe stuff like that. And so they believed that their ranch was going to be one of those safe havens. So it was like absolutely essential that they have as much land and as much, like as big of a ranch as possible. And so they, but the problem was, is that they weren't very good at making money on that ranch and the ranch uh, didn't, wasn't really self-sufficient. And so they started a bakery on the ranch to kind of pay the bills so they could acquire all of this land and like have basically play cowboy for God. When they started the bakery, it was right on the ranch. And they, the plan was that they were going to be take making bread and delivering it to like the the local community. And then also to Yellowstone national park, because Yellowstone national park was pretty close and it was actually a pretty good opportunity because there, like, there was a lot of tourism that, that hit that in, in the 90s. And so they start the bakery. And when they start the bakery, because it's on the property, pretty quick, they, they decide that they don't want to have any Gentiles coming to work in the bakery because they don't want anyone like who would be wicked to come on the ranch to corrupt the youth, right? If we saw someone with like, I don't know, a tank top or like a Nirvana shirt, we might get some ideas. And so they, they're like, we're not going to do any of that. But fortunately there's like this whole crop of children who are all here all the time. And so they had to start working in the bakery. So I started working in the bakery when I was eight and I started working there full time when I was 11. And by the time I was 14, I was basically running the place. Uh, and, and that was pretty brutal work. Like we were, when I say bakery, I think some people have like, like this cute, like mom and pop shop idea in their head. Like they're thinking like, oh, I've been to a great harvest once and that bakery looks kind of fun. Uh, we're talking like cement floors, industrial mixers, industrial ovens, heavy equipment. It was, it was dangerous work and, and we got hurt quite often. That's and what I was ask you what, so what, what kind of things were you putting out? I mean, if you're, if you're shipping it to Yellowstone, uh, you're probably fulfilling pretty large orders during the summer season, at least. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we would, we would ship, uh, so we were doing, we would, we made bread, we made granola, we made cookies and we made cinnamon rolls and we would go, I mean, in the height of the summer, we were taking two trips a week through Yellowstone with like a full van of bread, like hundreds of loaves. We would make like in the height of the summer, we would make pro in fact, I can just do the math real quick. We'd make probably a batch was about 150 loaves and we'd make, you know, easily 15 batches in a day. So that's about 2000 loaves. And we would do that twice a week during the summer. So we would, we'd be making about four to 5,000 loaves of bread a week. And we'd be shipping that to the, and by shipping them, what that meant is like, we would put it in our vans and then I would go and drive with my dad. Um, and we would, and when we would go there and deliver it's in the summertime. And so everyone there is like, oh my God, it's so cool that you have your son with you like on his summer break. And you're like, you know, it's like this fun father thing. 
And what they don't realize is that I worked 13 hours the day before making all of this bread that I'm going to work. I've already worked 10 hours today. I'm going to work another 15 today, sleep in the van that night, and then do it all over again tomorrow, just in time to go back to the branch and make another bread day on Thursday. And so it's like, there was this veneer of like, oh, isn't it cool that you have your, that you get to like your, your son's here and you're like teaching him the value of work. And, but what's really happening is that I'm being exploited, right? I'm getting paid 25 cents an hour to do hard labor in a bakery that I can't leave if I want to. And that's happening from the time I'm eight until I'm 18. Yeah, that's what I want to dig into that a little bit before we go on with your story, because child labor is a huge uh, issue in the state of Utah and in, in Mormon communities. And I think there's this Mormon ethos around hard work anyway. And part of it, I mm-hmm. agree, right. You know, I love, I love that I, that I have learned to work hard in my life and that people totally. are as well, but it does come at a cost. I mean, there are reasons that child labor laws have been enacted in this country, but I do think in, in our culture and community, there's this sort of, uh, attitude about it, that it, you know, it was a good thing for us, but let's talk about, talk about some of the injuries, talk about some of the risks that you saw and maybe, um, maybe the hope or dream that you would have had for your childhood, what you could have been doing if you weren't Mm. working in a bakery all day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question. And I, I, I agree that there, there's a real problem in, in our culture with that. That's one of the reasons why I'm speaking out, why I'm like on TikTok and like the, 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 the thing I like to do is make people laugh. But what I'm really doing is I'm educating people. I'm letting people kind of peek into a world that's been painted as like a happy, like nice, fun world. And it's actually very, there's a lot of toxicity in there. And just a, a point of that, right, is that like, I'm super grateful that I know how to work hard, but the cost of being labor trafficked. What it means to like your, a, a person's soul is that you don't feel like your labor, like your work is for you. And so it's like the, what, what you lose is sovereignty and choice. And it's taken me the better part of two decades to work through that, to work to a place where I feel like my energy and my being is for me and that I get to take action and to, and to work to make my life better. It's not for someone else. It's not for uh, a cause that's not me. It's for me. I get to be here. And that's the cost, right? That's like the, the emotional and, and even sometimes the physical cost. What it looked like on the ground is that during the summer, and, and we've worked during the winter too, but it was, it was like we would go down to like maybe two days a week that we would work. In the summer, we were working six days a week. And a typical week for me looked like this. On Monday, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I would go down to the bakery and I would start making bread and I would make bread until about 10 o'clock that night. And I would have a couple of breaks in between there. Like I would take a lunch break. I I would kind of like maybe do a a couple of other things, but I was working basically from three o'clock until around 10 and then I would go to sleep. And then I would wake up at two o'clock and I would come down to load my dad to, cause he and I were going to go deliver to Yellowstone. So I would load the van while he was sleeping because he was going to drive. So I would load the van and then we would get in the van and we would drive. It was a three hour drive to Yellowstone. I would sleep for part of that, but for part of it, I would also drive because my dad had me start driving when I was 11 
Um, that was actually how I learned to drive it, on, on a highway is that he woke me up when I was 11 and said, I can't drive anymore. I'm falling asleep. So I need you to drive as we're like driving to Yellowstone. And so he's like, put the, keep it between the white line and the yellow line and keep it under 50. And I was like, here I go driving on the highway as an 11 year old. Um, and I crushed it. Like it was great. I was a fantastic driver. That was my, that was my Tuesday. And that Tuesday, then we're delivering all day on Tuesday. We'll get back home at like midnight, sometimes one o'clock. And then the next day's Wednesday, Wednesday, we make granola Wednesday. I can get up at a little bit later. I can get up at six o'clock and go make some granola. I'm in the, I'm in the bakery probably until four or five. And then I got to go to bed because Thursday's the big day. Thursday, I'm getting up at two or three. I'm coming down. I'm working bread again. And we're doing bread again until probably 10 o'clock that night. I'm going to bed again. Now I'm waking up at two o'clock the next morning to go download my dad again. Cause we're going to do a two day delivery to Yellowstone this time. I deliver with him all day on Friday. We sleep in the van in Yellowstone, deliver all day on Saturday. We get back six, seven, eight o'clock on a Saturday. And then we get to go to church. And that is every week of every summer of my entire childhood from the time I was 11 until I was, until I left when I was 18. And I want to talk about your church, but I, let's talk about what happens if you're a normal kid and getting up at two in the morning is hard for you, or you don't want to do it, or you have a bad day. What, what happened to the kids who struggled with this schedule? Maybe kids that weren't neurotypical or things like that. What, what was that like for them? Do you know? For me, what it was like, I I don't know. I, I know that it wasn't good for me. And I, I believe that it wasn't good for anyone. One of the reasons I, I started, so I, I, I began kind of a trauma recovery journey about uh, three years ago. And one of the things that sort of pushed me into it was kind of tracking. I, I, I sat down and I wrote out, I was like, what happened? Like what actually happened to me on that, on that compound? And one of them is I, I tracked just like with that schedule thinking about, okay, how much sleep did I lose as a teenager? And I got about a third, I lost about a third of the sleep that I was supposed to have as a, as a teenager. So what that means probably is that my brain got fucked up. Like, I don't know how much, I don't know. I don't know what I could be. I I don't know what I could do if I wasn't that way, but I have, I have massive sleep debt that I'm still trying to pay back. And if, you know, if we like you, you asked the question, like, what if we couldn't handle, like, what if I just didn't feel good? What if I didn't want to wake up that morning? It was like, doesn't really matter. You have to. So I, you would get yelled at, like if I slept in and this didn't just happen to me, this happened to you know, anyone, anyone who didn't, you know, do what the family needed, uh, we'd get in trouble. Like I, I have, I remember like regularly waking up to some adults screaming at me because I'd slept in because now it was four o'clock instead of three o'clock. And I was an hour late to the bakery. So let's, let's talk about church. Uh, I think people want to know what church was like for AUB, because I think it would be surprising to mainstream to realize how, how similar your life is, especially, mm-hmm. but what is polygamous church like? So polygamous church is you all get together for uh, like a sacrament meeting and the sacrament meeting is, it depends on where you're at, but it's like for us, it was hosted in like one of the members garages. Like that was our, our church. And we had like a bunch of chairs, um, like the, the fold out chairs that the Mormons have. We had those. We had uh, old uh, LDS hymnals, like the brown and the blue ones. Although they, the AUB has since published their own hymnal, which is just an absolute doozy. It has some truly awful hymns in it. 
but we 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 just sung with out of out of those those hymns we had it was like someone would conduct so there would be a, a priesthood holder at the at the front it usually wasn't one difference is like in in the in the LDS wards it's like the bishop and his counselors they're sitting up on the stand and in the in the AUB where I was at the person who was in charge the bishop of the it wasn't he wasn't he was a bishop but we weren't really called a ward we weren't really a we were just like a group but he was like the bishop of the group and he would ask a priesthood member to conduct for that church day and then that person would go up and sit and then we would have the sacrament the sacrament was not blessed by teenagers it was blessed by uh, adult men that was one of the things that was was believed was important is like you had to be a priest to bless or pass the sacrament. So they didn't have deacons passing. They would just like bless it and then they pass it. They would do like a loaf of bread and then break it all up rather than like the sliced bread. And that was important because that was one of the ways that the, the LDS church had sort of fallen away from the truth is that the LDS church would use sliced bread and they would break it up before they prayed it. And we would pray over it first, which is the right way to do it. And then we would break it up because it was the body of Christ, right? And then we also had a common cup, which was super fun. So rather than for the for the water, instead of like a bunch of little bunch of little like shot glasses, we had like one cup that we all backwashed in. That's nice, uh, and I'm glad to know that that's the first time I heard that we fell fell away with our sliced bread. Yes, yeah, I, will, I mean, you know, yeah. that's the thing about Mormonism, right? Is you never quite know what it is that's going to get you, but in your case, it was sliced bread. Well, as a baker, you would know, you know, the same. I mean, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't know the, the proper way. Um, but so then this was, this is really, the, I think the main difference. And it, it is that after all of that, after we did all of that, by the way, when I first, when I first attended an LDS church and on my mom's, my mom's parents, we like went and went to their house and I saw the little shot glasses and I was like, oh my God, that's genius. Like that is so, because it's so gross that we're all drinking out of the same water glass and and I told my parents that and they're like, yeah, but that's not the proper way to do it. Like the righteous way is the way that where we all share spit, which was so gross to me. Um, it was so gross. But uh, the, after the sacrament, then what would happen is that the person who was conducting would generally give a talk and giving a talk basically meant like you weren't, you didn't prepare. Giving a talk meant getting up and sort of saying whatever you felt like the spirit wanted you to say. So it was a free for all. Like it could literally anything could come out of anyone's mouth and it did. So I think polygamous church is actually far more entertaining <laughs> than the LDS church. Cause the LDS give us, church is give like us a, the highlight. What is one of the craziest things you've heard across the pulpit? So I, the craziest thing, Oh, this one, this is tough. The, the craziest thing I think that I've heard is that girls should not use vegetables to masturbate. Uh, I mean, I can see an argument for that, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> right. It's, it's not right. <laughs> what is, um, so anything could happen, right? That's the fun. No, of, I'm of just a... trying to, th- I, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not moving on from that yet. I'm, <laughs> trying, I'm trying to find the words here. Why? Who said it? And what I, was, I don't know. It was, so it was, this was actually at a, this was actually at a conference in Pinesdale, which functions in the same way where it's just like, so, so this, this, where, so the person conducting gives a talk and then he calls on people. So he like will follow the spirit and call on someone in the audience to then come up male or female 
come up and they will then speak from the spirit. And then they just do that until it's over. So someone had called on the, one of the members of the council of friends, which is the leadership organization of, it's basically the, the AUB's version of the 12 apostles. And his, his name was Marvin Jessup. And he was this old polygamous dude. And he got up there and he just started talking about how he was, how he was like concerned because he was hearing these stories of these girls, like masturbating with vegetables and, uh, and that that was not okay. That God did not condone that. And I, I was like 14. And honestly, all that made me do is think a lot about how you would masturbate with a vegetable. I mean, I think we've done that to our entire audience. So now I think I think that's about that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I it's so funny that you know, first of all, that that's a problem. Second of all, that he felt the need to do it over the pulpit, and right. uh, also there's a joke in there about Mormon AUB husbands being vegetables, but we can find. Oh, out. that's a good one. I've been playing yeah, with this idea. Yeah. I'm going to, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to, I'm going to write that in because that's a, that's the angle there. <laughs> so, okay. So you've got, you've got that going on. How, how does priesthood work? Were you ordained at 12? What was that like? Yeah. So priesthood, priesthood is really, really important in the AUB because the AUB, the AUB believes that there, that Joseph Smith restored two organizations that he restored the church and then he restored the priesthood, right? And the priesthood is like the governing body, the governing power of the church, and, but they can be separate. So right now they believe that the LDS church is the church that was restored by Joseph Smith. And it is the true church, but it is just out of alignment with the priesthood. And so it's doing fine. Like it, they actually think they're, it's doing its mission to like spread the gospel of, of the book of Mormon to the whole earth. And, and then eventually uh, the priesthood, which is the AUB, will take over the LDS church. So that's actually something that we can look forward to is that eventually the polygamists of the AUB are going to acquire a hundred billion dollar organization and they're going to do some cool shit with that. So I'm excited. But priesthood is important, right? So that's that's the, the this idea that like you have to have a you have to have a pure bloodline, right? So they're they're very much into the whole um, black blood, blood is the curse of God. And if you have any like you should be killed, or if your seed mixes with the seed of the descendant of Cain, your blood should be like shed on the spot. We like hear people quote that in like priesthood meeting and stuff. And so it's important, right? You have to get it and it has to be, you have to be worthy of it and you have to have the right bloodline and you have to have the right lineage of priesthood authority, right? And so uh, I got the priesthood when I was 12. I got the, I was made a deacon. And that actually caused a significant amount of conflict in the, like in the group that I was lived in, in Wyoming, because about half of the members of the, of the kind of other men of the priesthood, they didn't think they were kind of, of the, of the, the heritage of they'd been polygamists for several generations. And they thought that, that this giving the priesthood to teenage boys, like 12 as a deacon, 14 as a teacher, that that was an innovation of the church and that that wasn't proper. And so there was a, a bit of a conflict when my dad decided that we were going to be ordained. But after that, we kind of just followed that sequence. So I was a, a, a deacon when I was 12. I was a teacher when I was 14. I was a priest when I was 16. And then I became an elder when I was, uh, when I was 18. And the th weird thing is, is like, as a, 
as a deacon and as a teacher in the polygamous priesthood, there's like nothing for you to do because you can't pass the sacrament. And so you, basically you just have like all of the power of God and you can't do anything with it. So it's super lame. You can bake bread. I mean, I can bake bread. <laughs> I, and what's actually kind of funny is I still have that polygamous priesthood because I've never, so I, I went from polygamy to Mormonism and then I, I formally exited the, the LDS church. So I've lost my, my LDS priesthood, but I still do have my polygamous priesthood because they, I haven't been withdrawn and I, they haven't excommunicated me yet. So I tell people all the time, like, if you need a polygamous bl- blessing, I got you, I can do it. Cause I still have that. You got a cash app. He'll send you a polygamous blessing. He's got his own. You know what? For it. That's actually a really good idea. I would, I think that that constitutes priestcraft, but I'm actually okay with that. <laughs> well, speaking of, of, of priesthood, can you sidestep for a minute and explain to our listeners who might not know the structure or function of AUB, how does the priesthood structure work there? In the past, we've interviewed, you know, some folks from the group, but tell, tell us about the structure of the church. Yeah. So the, the way that I understand it, it, it and this, the, the, maybe I'll, I'll caveat it by saying this Mormon polygamy, and especially like, especially in the AUB is, is sort of a free for all. And what I mean by that is that if you can find, like, if you can find evidence in the journal of discourses or in kind of the early sayings of prophets and apostles, you can, you can pretty much kind of propose any idea that you want. And some people might listen to you and some people might, might not. So I'm not saying that this is, and there's, there's not like in the LDS church, there's like this, there's correlation, right? So there's like this official doctrine that that's what it is. The correlation doesn't exist in Mormon polygamy, um, unless you have a really strong like leader, like, like a Warren Jeffs who's like, this is what we're going to do. But in the AUB, that didn't really, that, that wasn't my experience of it. But what I understood the structure to be that I think is pretty commonly followed is that the, 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 the organization is led by what's called the council of friends and the council of friends, it kind of, it's justification goes from in the new Testament. There's this part where Jesus tells his, his apostles that now he's going, now he's calling them his friends. So it's like, you used to be apostles. Now you're my friends. And they see that as a, as a, as a change in office. So there in their minds, there are offices, right? And so there's the council of friends is like the, the leadership body of the priesthood. And then the quorum of the 12 apostles is the leadership body of the church. And those things are separate. And the priesthood is actually above it. And, and then if everything is functioning naturally, there's the, uh, there's the council of friends. Underneath the council of friends is what's called the council of 50. And the council of 50 is basically a theological, like a theological, not theological, sorry, um, a theocratical um, organization. It's a governing body. It's a government that handles the, that they, that they believe is going to actually govern the United States in the last days, but it's okay because that member, that body is made up of 48 members of the church and then two honorable men of the world. So all of the people who are not Mormon totally get represented and taken care of because there are two men there who represent them who are honorable. So it works. And then underneath the council of 50, there's what's called the council, the, the council of the Sanhedrin. And the council of the Sanhedrin is, you know, going back to the new Testament. And that I think is supposed to be like, num- the numbers are important. And I think that number is 70, 
but I'm not uh, like, I'm not entirely, I don't know that I remember it exactly, but that's kind of the structure. And then underneath them is what's called a patriarch. And the function of the patriarch, the patriarch is an office in the uh, LDS church too, but the function of the patriarch in this model is to basically weed out only direct descendants of the tribe of Israel who have pure blood because those are the only people that get to be in this higher level organization in the priesthood, right? Those are the only people who get to have priesthood. And then the patriarch is above the president of the church, which is the, that's where the Mormon, that's where the LDS church comes into play, right? So then you have the president of the church, the council of the first presidency, the quorum of the 12 apostles, and all of this, the councils of 70s. So what they believe is that there's this kind of secret organization that is above, that kind of gets grafted on top of the LDS church structure. And that from the time of Joseph Smith up until the time of uh, Joseph F. Smith, that you could basically be in two seats at once, right? You could hold two different offices. So they believe that Joseph Smith, he was the president of the Council of Friends and he was the president of the church. So he was sitting in both offices and same with why you guys have such compatibility with LDS and you engage in a lot of LDS mm -hmm. culture schools. Totally. Yeah. In the AUB's mind, the LDS church isn't bad. It's not wrong. It's just lower. Right. So it's not that the, and in fact, they believe that the LDS church is doing God's work they're just the LDS church. The church is supposed to bring the milk of the gospel to the entire world. And then the patriarch's job is to find the people in the church who are worthy. And by worthy, it means like they have the right bloodline to be in like to be incorporated into the meat of the gospel. And then once you get, and then you get to be like, learn plural marriage and uh, practice United order and do all of the things that are, uh, true and good and happy. Let's talk about your idea of United Order. How does that play out? And and also, if we can talk about the structure of women in the church. Yeah, so uh, love to talk about both of those. So the United Order, the idea, the idea behind the United Order is that you have everything in common, right? And it's in the in the mythos of the Mormon kind of the Mormon history, the way that the AUB sees that is that it's essentially Joseph Smith trying to establish a united order everywhere he goes. So he tries to do it in Kirtland. The people aren't righteous enough to, to establish a, a united order in Kirtland, so it falls apart and they get kicked out. He tries to do it in Missouri. Again, people aren't righteous because it's really hard. They get kicked out. Tries again in Nauvoo. Doesn't work. And so there's this idea of kind of throughout Mormon history, we've been trying to live this united order. And so the, the way that the AUB is actually structured is there aren't, there aren't really wards or, or, or groups like that. There are orders. So there's an order in Pinesdale. Pinesdale's an attempt to be a united order. There's, a pine, there's an order in uh, Sanaquin where there's, it's called Rocky Ridge and there's an attempt to be an order there. There's an order in Bluffdale. So there's all these different orders and each one of them is sort of structured differently, right? In some of them, uh, the, the, the group owns everything. They own all of the land and then, you, and then you kind of like build it all together. So if you leave, you lose everything. Some of them, like the way that it was sort of structured in Wyoming is that 
there, we didn't, we didn't own anything in common, but we did pay kind of a, into a common pot that could be, that could be used to bless like everyone. So we would have like work projects. We would help build each other's houses. We would help fix things when things were broken, but basically the United order, like what it really looked like in practice is a bunch of people like sitting around talking about how they weren't righteous enough to live the United order. (laughs) Because they didn't want to actually do things in common and have things in common. So that's kind of the United Order. In terms of women, they're, the status of women in the AUB is interesting. Because in some ways, they are... So I would just maybe start by saying, in all of Mormonism, all of Mormonism is misogynistic and patriarchal, right? They're, the Mormons, nowhere in Mormonism am I aware of a, of a place where they where they've really nailed the way that that women are treated or that they've like equally incorporated women into structures of power to, to do things. So that's the same in polygamy, right? In polygamy, because in the LDS church, women can't have the priesthood. They have no power in in the church, practically speaking. It's the same thing in the, in the AUB. But what's interesting about the AUB is that in the AUB, they do believe that women hold the priesthood with their husbands. So if a husband isn't present, an, a, a polygamist wife can give a blessing. And that happened to me pretty regularly. If my dad was out of town and I was feeling sick, my mom would give me a blessing. And she would be a priesthood well, blessing. The, yeah, I was going to ask, does she invoke priesthood? Yeah, it was a, it's a priesthood blessing. And then she would say, uh, you know, uh, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Melchizedek priesthood, which I hold with my husband, I pronounce this blessing on your head. Right. And so that was kind of interesting, right? Like there, there, as, as a kid growing up, there was definitely, like, I could tell, like, you can tell when there's, when, when one gender is treated differently than the other. And so it was pretty obvious to me that, the structure that I, I lived inside prioritized men as the, the actors and the ones who had power. But there was also sort of this interesting back door where women still had power. Women could invoke the power of God if the, if the conditions were right. And I think that sort of, that idea kind of opened my mind to this idea of, well, if women can do it sometimes, why can't they do it all the time? That doesn't really make sense. How, uh, how did you guys interact as youth, boys and girls? We, so that kind of evolved in an interesting way in, in the group in Wyoming, because we all sort of, when we, when it started, all of the kids were very young. And so when I was a little kid, there wasn't really any kind of primary structure or anything like that. Um, in other groups, they did do that. So that down in Utah, where there were more people, they had like primaries and Sunday schools and stuff. They didn't have that when I was very little. We got a primary when I was like, I think probably like 11, 10 or 11. I was just about to, to kind of leave and become like become a deacon. And we would do primary on Wednesdays. So it wasn't part of the church. It was just like on Wednesdays, we'd come in and we'd do primary at the church. And then for youth, once we got some people in Kenny Youth, we started what was called like a youth class. So there would be a youth class, which was all of us together. And then a girls class, which was just the girls. And then like an ironic priesthood meeting, which was for the boys, but it was all kind of lumped together. So it wasn't like deacons teach because there weren't enough of us, right? There were like five boys and two of us were deacons and two of us were teachers. And one of us was a, was a priest. And then we would do like youth conferences 
kind of like uh, they do in the LDS church. And we would go on trek like they do in the LDS church too. Where did you guys do your treks at? I think we just did it at the same place that you guys did. Did you dress up and do the whole thing? Totally. Yeah. Dress up, which is like, if we could just pause there for a moment, the fact that the LDS church has bamboozled thousands of people to go and reenact a failure and a tragedy to me is like hysterically funny. Like it is, it is wild that so many people have like pulled handcarts across rivers in like lower Wyoming because the LDS church wanted to spin a story that a bunch of people leaving way too late was actually a faith promoting experience. Well, and it's not just that it's like, have you heard of the people that had to carry flower babies, like a, like a pound of flour as a baby. And then they had to bury them along the trail. Like we've venerated this death oh. as if it was sort of almost this weird badge of honor, you know? Right. Right. When what really like, and that's, that's what kind of deeply pisses me off about Mormonism is that there is so much suffering that has happened. Mormons have really suffered in our history, 100%, right? I have really suffered in my life, but I've suffered because of Mormonism, right? The reason that I was labor trafficked is because my parents believe an offshoot of a bullshit lie that Joseph Smith told 200 years ago. The reason that people crossed the plains in winter and then buried babies in the ground is because they believed someone who lied. And that to me is like, I, 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 it, it really makes me mad. It really makes me mad because the, the suffering is real. Right. And I, when I, when I hear Mormons talk about their history and say like, Oh, we were persecuted. I'm like, yeah, you totally were. And that totally sucks. It sucks to be persecuted. The reason that you were persecuted is because you were in a cult and the, the real person that's hurting you is the person that was your leader. That's the person that put you in the position that then that awful thing happened to you. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that with under the banner and Hans mill Hans mill is an absolute mm-hmm. track. There's no way around it, but the, the tragedy for me is, isn't just the death and the suffering that, that the family had, but that these people suffered for something that had really nothing to do with them other than that they were following Joseph Smith. You know, they were right for the crimes of these Mormon leaders. Yeah. Of course, ironically, it endears the people who have lost everything back to those leaders because it sort of, it sort of binds you in a purpose. So, Mm -hmm. well, let's, let's go into, uh, how you, how you sort of age out when, when you realize you don't want to be in this group anymore. Tell us, tell us how you move from being 18, working in a bakery, sort of immersed in this, what happens after that? Yeah. So, um, my parents around the time that I was 17, 18, my parents decided that, um, it was important for me to go to college, which is a bit of an anomaly. I'm the only, well, I'm now actually the second because in a, in a very random twist of fate, my younger sister went to college and I'm like super proud of her. Um, but at that point I was the first and, uh, their kind of desire in doing that is they were like, we, they, they, they believe that, um, a big part of, of, and it goes back to 
the under banner of heaven, right? So there's this political motivation in, in the La- what the Lafferty's do, right? And that political motivation is, is also part of Mormon polygamy, at least the way that I experienced it. So my family was very political and they believed that the, the government was like, in, the, in a similar way that the church had fallen away from the truth, they believed that the government had fallen away from the truth of the constitution. And so they were like, uh, we need to protect the constitution and because we're going to protect the constitution and we're righteous, eventually the evil government is going to come for us. And so we need a lawyer in our family to protect us when that happens, not just our family, but like we need a lawyer in the AUB so that when the AUB is under attack by the evil government, there will be someone who can defend us. Right. And so they looked around, they're like, Ben reads books. So he's our lawyer guy. And they were like, we're going to send you to college. And so they sent me to college. And while I was at college, I, I ended up going to this liberal arts school in Southern Utah. It was very right-wing, um, very, like it was the kind of school that you would imagine that polygamous people would send their, their kid to. But we also read classics. So I was reading like Plato and Aristotle and um, Dickens and uh, Kant, right? I was reading all of these like really profound thinkers. And so my whole world was just like opening up and it happened pretty fast. And so uh, I was at college for about two years. And during that time I lived, I lived 800 miles away from home. I was interacting with other, um, with like exclusively Mormons. Cause it was like, I was deep in Southern Utah, but these were LDS Mormons, right? These were, these were Mormons that I had never really interacted with before. I'd been told that they were evil and bad. And I thought they were just really nice and really kind and lovely people. And so that started to crack. And then I met a, a really lovely woman at college. I felt like madly in love with her and she was LDS. And so she was like interested in me, but sort of not because I, because of the polygamy thing. And so we were kind of friends and sort of like into each other for about two years. And then about two years into that, we were like, okay, we really like each other. So we need to figure out this religion thing. And so we prayed, we talked about it, we thought about it. And I decided ultimately that I felt like I was, that the, the God was telling me to join the LDS church. And so that's what I did. And when I did that, I was, it was like, it was the fall from grace, right? It was like Lucifer falling from heaven. And uh, I was told like that I was, that I was giving into wickedness, that I would be buffeted by the winds of Satan for the rest of my life, that it wasn't my calling. Um, my, my, I, right before this had happened, I'd actually gotten my patriarchal blessing from the AUB and it was a pretty badass patriarchal blessing. Cause I was like kind of a big deal. And it told me that I was going to be the one who reunited the church and the priesthood. So that was a very fun, like that was a nice ego trip for my, for me to feel when I was 17. Uh, there's nothing that makes a 17 year old mentally healthy, like hearing that they're the chosen one. And so that was like, that was very, very fun for me. And I had to let that go, which was sad. I was, it was like, I'm not the chosen one anymore. um, Converting as maybe part of fulfilling that mission. Um, They really didn't. No, no. The, the, the idea, they were pretty devastated because, because their view of it is that by choosing the LDS faith, I was, I was essentially choosing the weaker path, right? The, the lesser path. It was okay to be Mormon but it wasn't the best that you could be. And so 
that that that's like their they, they which is actually kind of surprising because I think that you could and I, you know it wouldn't surprise me if in some level in their minds they were thinking yeah maybe this will be the, the case but they were not thrilled by the decision so then we're then it's just me and my wife and we're LDS and then we like good LDS people we start having babies and we are LDS for five years. And keep in mind that during the point when I'm going from polygamy to, to LDS, I know nothing about, I know nothing about the historicity questions of the Book of Mormon. I know nothing about the, the Book of Abraham. I know nothing about Kinderhook. I know nothing about any of like multiple accounts of the first vision. Never had heard of that. I didn't even know that Joseph Smith married underage girls. I thought that that was I, I thought that that was the way that the AUB had spun that is like, that's something that Warren Jeffs, that only Warren Jeffs does. And he's crazy. Right. And so all of that, I had no idea of, but I did have this, like this pretty strong sense of that, that it was important for women to have power in organizations because I'd kind of, the thing that I'd sort of stepped away from was this idea of, of polygamy, right. Which is, is just, it's it, it, so it just locks women into, into one thing. Right. And so I was like, that's, that was one of the things that was really nice about the LDS church. So I was like, Oh, I think that I can be more expansive here. Right. I think that I can have a bigger view of the world. I don't have to be a racist anymore. That was really nice. Um, and so, uh, LDS for a couple of years. And then in like 2014, that's when the, when Kate Kelly starts kind of doing the ordained women thing, and my wife and I get right on board with that. We're like, yeah, hundred percent. This makes sense. Like, just go ask. Like, if you have, oh my God, prophets. If you have a bat phone to God, why not just go ask if women can have the priesthood? Like, let's just check. And uh, when they, when it was announced that she was getting excommunicated, it was also announced at the same time that a guy named John Delin was getting excommunicated. And I'm like, who is this John Delin dude? And so I Google him. And then I find Mormon stories and then I just go down that rabbit hole. And within a couple of like, within probably six months, I'm like, oh, this is bullshit too. It's all bullshit. And then me, my wife and I both exit. So we're out of Mormonism entirely. So I want to back up really quick and talk about the conversation that you have when you tell your wife before she's your wife, how about the polygamy thing? How, how do you bring that up? How does that conversation happen? So when I went to college, I had this story. I didn't know the full details of how my dad had misrepresented myself himself to my mom until I was, I didn't get that full story until a couple of years ago, actually. And, but I did know that my mom's parents were really angry at him because they felt like he had deceived them. So I knew that there was an element of like, people felt like my dad hadn't been authentic in how he'd showed up. And I didn't want to be that way. I wanted to always, I've always had a, a pretty strong sense of I'm going to be who I am. And I'm going to be honest about that. I mean, there's no reason for me to hide that. And so when I went to college, I told people, I was like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from a polygamous group. I, at that point, I didn't, I didn't see that I was like in a cult. So I wasn't like, I'm from a polygamous compound. I was just like, yeah, I grew up in polygamy. I'm part of the ABB. I'm just here to go to school. And so I was pretty open about it, right? I would talk to people about it. We would talk about some of the differences between the LDS and the AUB. And it wasn't really until, it wasn't really until we started dating that we then started to really ask questions about, and, and for me, it all, it all hinged around authority, right? Because I really believed, right? I really believed that 
God had spoken to Joseph Smith and had uh, like authorized Joseph Smith to be the guy, right? That's one of the things in Mormonism, right? Is that in Mormonism, there's this idea that there's one person that God picks on earth to be his representative. And if you can align yourself with that person, you're set because that person will never lead you astray. And so that idea was really important to me. So for me, it wasn't really a question of polygamy or not polygamy, or it wasn't doctrinal. It was a question of who has the real authority to do that. And the way that that worked for me is that as we were like praying and talking about it and trying to figure it out, I was reading in the Doctrine and Covenants. And there was this passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that says, it's talking about the priesthood. And again, remember in my mind, there's the priesthood, which is the, the, the AUB. And then there's the church, which is the LDS church. And so it says, the priesthood shall remain with the church forever until the, the, the end of days. And I was like, oh, that seems to say that this whole priesthood church split that I was taught in the AUB, that's not true. So therefore it must be the LDS church. And so I just jumped over to the LDS church. That was really like the, the, the way the conversation went. My, my, my wife, we've since separated. So she's, she's now my ex. I want to just clarify on that. But, but she, at the time, she was like, she was open to polygamy being the answer because she had been raised in Mormonism, right? She'd been raised to LDS. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of talk where people would kind of say like, you know, maybe in the last days we'll, we'll live polygamy again, right? That was a common enough belief among the lay people of Mormonism that my mom had heard it. And that's what sort of got her into polygamy. And that my, my ex had also heard it, right? She'd also been like, it was conceivable to her that that would be a thing that God would command. And so she was willing to do it. And ultimately she didn't because we figured that God actually hadn't been commanding it because God was commanding the LDS church. Yeah. I mean, that's similar to the the upbringing that I had as well. And, mm. and I said, we'd come back to this. So talk about how your dad dated. Cause this is a, this is a critique. I've had a fundamentalist, the dishonesty in which they court women into this system. I yeah. think, I think it's predatory and, and, and let's be clear, not all fundamentalists do this, but to the fundamentalists who still are doing this and who are listening, not okay. This is not yeah. okay. Let's talk about it. A hundred percent. And I, I, I a hundred percent agree with, with you using the term predatory. That is what it is. Right. And one of the things that, one of the critiques that I have about all of Mormonism, not just fundamentalists in general, is that it, all of Mormonism creates a place that's really safe and accessible for people who are predatory. So that doesn't mean that all Mormons are predators. It just means that in Mormonism, if you're a predator, you can really clean up. Because the whole system, because the system was fucking designed by a predator who his name was Joseph Smith, right? And so if you're a narcissistic, predatory pedophile and you start a cult, the rest of that cult kind of looks like that. But so what my dad did is my dad felt like, so he's engaged, right? He is a, he's a LDS member. He's engaged to an LDS girl. Him and his family have now decided they've researched the deeper doctrines. They believe that they have found this secret, uh, true church, right? The AUB that is sort of like an exile. So it's not, it's not the official church, but it is, it is in charge of it, but it's sort of like letting the church kind of run astray and kind of do its own thing, but eventually it's going to take over. And so with that knowledge, my dad believes, Hey, I am a member 
of the LDS church. He is still a member. Now he's engaged, but he's thinking, I'm a member of the LDS church. And when I pray with my fiance, we feel like we have to find uh, another wife first and that, that we're all supposed to be married together. And part of that was because my my other mom had been married before. And so there was this, there was this purity thing, right? There was this idea of like the first wife needs to be a virgin. And so that's what we're going to do, right? That's what we're going to find. And so they go to, they, they move from Wyoming where they're at. They move down to Utah. Uh, they attend college. Uh, they, they go to the Utah state and they aren't living together. They live in separate places. And my dad um, just attends the singles word and just dates girls, just takes them out on dates, goes to dances. Like he's doing all, all of these things. And none of them know that he is engaged. Uh, my mom, when they start dating, she doesn't know that he's engaged. She, she actually meets my other mom. And she just kind of knows her as like my dad's family friend, who's a widow, who he's helping while she's at college. Right. So it's like, that was sort of the, w- the way that the relationship had been kind of like portrayed and it gets to the point where my mom, my mom's 19. My dad is 26. My mom is fresh out of high school. It's her first, she's a Mormon girl, like a Mormon, Mormon girl who is innocent and doesn't really like, is just kind of like believes that she's basically at college to find someone to marry. Right. My mom said over and over that she felt like her life calling was to be a mom. So she just went to college. She always, she's like, I always knew what I was, that I was going to be a mom. So when they uh, were asking me at like high school, like what I wanted to major in in college, I would just say, it doesn't matter. I just want to be a mom. And so finally they put me in home ec and she did one year there. So she's there. And my dad is, they're dating my dad. She's falling in love with him, right? She's in love with him. And then he tells her like, they're up, like what they're, They've talked a little bit about, like he's felt her out. Like they've talked about polygamy. They've talked about some of these things and, you know, he's kind of felt her out. And she's, she's told me that she believed her entire life that she would live polygamy, right? So she's, because she's grown up in this Mormon church that practiced polygamy and still talked about it, right? And still talked about it as something that was maybe in the future. So she's primed. They're up like sitting on, like watch, looking at a view or something and they're holding hands and my dad says something like, uh, how would you feel if I told you that you were holding the hands of an engaged man? I don't know how my mom responded to that, but by the time they walked down the mountain, my, my mom was basically engaged to my dad a second time. He told her about this kind of secret um, group that the way that he represented it to her was that uh, it was a, that it was authorized by the leadership of the LDS church. The leadership of the LDS church was aware of it, right? And so, but it's very secret. They keep it secret from her parents. They do become engaged publicly because my mom really wanted a temple wedding. So that she wanted to be married in the Logan temple. So they're engaged, but my dad keeps this secret about his engagement to this other woman. My parents, all three of them go to the, they get, they go to the AUB um, temple and they get uh, sealed. They get sealed. Well, actually, they don't even go to the temple. They go to, I think, the prophet's house and they get sealed. And after that, my mom just like goes home. They do this before my mom has even gotten baptized into the AUB, because at this point, she still thinks that this, that her, that her LDS baptism counts. And so in between that sealing and 
about a month later is when my dad and my mom get, get married in the Logan temple. She kind of is like on the fence. She's like trying, all of this is sort of like come, becoming revealed to her. And then eventually she decides to get baptized into the AUB. But at that point, she had been married secretly. She had been married for real. She was pregnant with me and she'd been cut off by her family. And so by the time, I mean, I don't know because I, I wasn't, you know, I was just there as a, as a fetus and then a baby, but I suspect that what happened is that my mom eventually kind of realized what may have happened, that she may have been lied to, that it may have been all untrue. And that rather than really grapple with the just painful reality of that, she went all in and she said, nope, I believe this too, because the alternative was just too horrifying. And this is not an isolated incident. We know of many stories like this. This is kind of the playbook for folks who mm-hmm. want moral lives, especially from the LDS church. Yeah. And, you know, the worst ones that I hear are men preying on, you know, divorced women, the stigma of divorce. Right. Widows, I've heard that too. That kind of thing. Well, I want to talk to you about your projects, but before that, can you help us understand what's going on with the AUB, the Pinesdale group? Give us an overview of that, because I know that there's a lot of drama in the last few years. So if you want to just catch people up on that, and then we'll talk about what you're doing and how people can support you. You know, I uh, I can only tell you a little bit because I, I have to be totally honest. I have not um, I have not renewed my subscription to the Polygamist magazine. And so I don't, I don't really know what's, I only care what, what kind of like what gets filtered through several layers of people through me. But what I understand that has happened over the last couple of years is that, uh, there was a, uh, a new prophet who got put in, his name was Lynn Thompson and that, uh, Lynn Thompson followed the, um, the footsteps of all great cult leaders by being accused of, uh, molesting his children, which I think is a hundred percent true. Like I totally believe that that happened sight unseen. Yeah. I, I, I buy that. That split the AUB like right down the middle. Like a whole bunch of people were like, no, that's a lie. That never happened. And then some were like, yes, it is. And that kind of just was a big bombshell in the middle of the group. He has since died. And there's now a guy named Dave Watson, who I think is like trying to like grab control over at least what's happening in Utah. It wouldn't surprise me if Pinesdale kind of went out by itself and did its own thing, but I don't know for sure that that's happening. That just wouldn't surprise because Pinesdale has always kind of been like a, they've been a little bit of a rogue state. Yeah. My understanding is it's splitting. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't, that really doesn't surprise me because that is that this, like a split is so common in, in Mormonism because Mormonism is a, is a, the, the best way that I can understand Mormonism and help people understand Mormonism is to, to recognize that it's a cult that was started by Joseph Smith. And then ever since then, different little cult, kind of like mini cult leaders have popped up within that organization on all levels. And they're fighting for the body of what Joseph Smith created. So the most dominant group is the LDS church, but it is so common for little micro cults to pop up even in the LDS church and for, for groups to kind of split off into different versions of polygamy. Um, there, are, there are probably hundreds of distinct groups that claim to be the chosen ones um, all throughout the, the Mormon world. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, so leave us with how, if you're comfortable, where's your family's group? What's going on with them? How, how is your relationship with them? Yeah. Um, so my, my family is, is kind of interesting. So my, in my extended family, um, about half, so my dad's family, right? My, my dad's family, about half of them ended up Mormon and about half of them did it or ended up polygamous. About half of them did it. Um, part of the, the ones that ended up polygamous, they went on to start a reality television show. So, so like, that's like the Cody Brown and that, that group of the family that he's my uncle. And so that family is kind of doing that thing. A bunch of the family is now just no longer Mormon at all. So that was pretty sparse. Like I was one of the first grandchildren that left. And now like I go back to family reunions and, and it's like all of my cousins who are my age and and a little bit younger, we are all not just not polygamous anymore. We're not Mormon anymore. And that honestly is like so rad (laughs) because it's been a really, it's been a long time coming. Like my family's been in the Mormon cult for 200 years and it's really, it was really fun to be out and it's fun to be out. And now to have other family members who are out and we can like hang out and be family together on the other side of it. As far as my immediate family, my immediate family, I think is the ones that are kind of embedded in the cult the most deeply. And so my dad is still in Wyoming. He is still very much uh, into everything that he believes. He thinks that we are in the apocalypse right now and that it's like we're, we're days away from Jesus coming back. Most of my siblings, I have 13 siblings who are younger than me, and most of, most of them are all still in the, in the AUB. I have um, one brother who is a, he was, he, he was from a mom that left and then became LDS, and he's still LDS. And then I have another brother who has just left entirely, he's, and he's not really connected with the family anymore. And then a brother and sister who followed me out of polygamy. And, and then other than that, there's, there's like, I think that leaves us with like 10 of, of them. And, and they are in, in various, like I have two sisters who are in plural marriages. I have a brother who I have two brothers who are married on their first wife and plan on having more. Yeah. Most of, most of my family is still very much in that world. Tell us what you're doing now, what you're up to and your comedy, and let's see how we can support you. And for folks that want to follow you, how can they do that? Yeah. So I, I have always been a storyteller. I've always enjoyed making people laugh. Um, that was, I would actually get in trouble for that on the compound quite a bit because you're not supposed to like engage in loud laughter. And I was like, I'm going to laugh as laugh as loud as I can. And so I, as I started, as I exited Mormonism and started to really kind of heal and get in touch with what, who Ben really is, I realized that who Ben really is, is a comedian. And so I've started a comedy career. And I'm about a year into it and I still have like a day job. I, I do like business consulting and, and kind of help entrepreneurs organize their businesses. And that's fun. It pays well. And it's, I'm, I'm lucky that that's one of the, those things where it's like, it, it sucks. It sucks to be labor trafficked. It really does. But when you start running companies, when you're 14, you know how to run companies. And so it, it like, it pays off in, in weird ways. So that's what I'm doing. But what I'm, what I'm really trying to build is a movement in Mormonism that is about reclaiming our story in a way that allows us to laugh and to find healing through humor. Because for me, the, one of the, the most valuable tools that I had in, in 
grappling with what happened to me and the lies that I was told and dismantling that is to make fun of it, is to laugh at it. And so I've started doing, I've started doing comedy. I've been doing it for a year and I've, uh, I've done, um, I've opened for a bunch of people from Ogden to Salt Lake. I've, I've even been to Vegas. I did two shows in Vegas last year. And now I'm going to be doing my very first headlining gig at Sunstone this summer. So number one way that people can come out and support me is to come to freaking Sunstone and attend and then come see me on the show that uh, it's Friday night and it's going to be awesome. You can also follow me on TikTok. I'm the, my TikTok handle is the fresh King Benjamin. And I, that's kind of the, the best way there you can join. You can sign up for my email list and the email list. You can go to fresh King Benjamin too. And then you can like get my updates. I'm writing a memoir and what I'm really trying to do, the big vision for what I want to create is, is it's this connection between comedy and healing, which has been so profound for me. And what I want to do is right now, Mormon, Mormonism is a fascinating topic to the American culture. We, I don't know why, but it, it has commanded literally hundreds of millions of dollars in in entertainment revenue, right? The Book of Mormon musical, South Park, Under the Banner of Heaven, all of the Netflix, Netflix documentaries. Like it's becoming this really, like really noticeable thing in our culture. And so part of what I want to do as a, as a comic is grab a lot of that attention and, and as much of those resources as I can, and then channel that into a nonprofit that, uh, that pays for essentially trauma therapy for people who are exiting both polygamy and Mormonism. Because what I've found in my journey is that it is impossible to heal on your own. And it is literally tens of thousands of dollars of, re of money that you need to be spent for people who have this background in order to heal. And often the people who leave are just the bravest and the, and the, the best people that I know. But leaving Mormonism and especially leaving Mormon polygamy is so fucking hard because Often in order to do that, you have to leave your entire support system. You have to leave everything that you've known. And especially in the case of Mormon polygamy, you have to step out into a world that you don't understand. And so I want to help tell my story in a way that makes people laugh, grabs attention, and then use that as a bridge to help people like me get out and to live, to live the life that they want to live rather than the life that they've been told they have to live. That's fantastic. You're, you're doing great stuff. You are hilarious. We've seen your set. Uh, I'm so excited for it. Come to fricking oh, sense. As you said, I, it's going to be great. And thanks for sharing your story with us. Yeah. I appreciate it so much. And I, I also want to just really thank you, Lindsay, for, you know, everything that you've done to, to create a space for people like me to tell a story. I just want you to know that I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that space and that it's, it's good work and it's, it's helping people. And so thank you for taking the time to, to let me come on and, and to share my story and for just everything that you're doing to make the world better. Thanks for that. Yeah, of course. And uh, I think your approach is really, really great. I think there's something healing about laughter and humor. And I mean, it, there, there's this attitude, I think, from those who haven't lived sort of these traumatic experiences to say, you can't laugh at that, or that's shocking, or that's so dark. But really, when it's so normalized that the casual violence or the uh, mm -hmm. exploitation or, you know, all of these attitudes, 
sometimes humor really is the best way to get through it. It's a, it's an act of resistance. So I really appreciate yeah. what you're doing. I think it's a, it's a good way to help people heal as well. I, I appreciate that. One of the things I learned on the compound is that when you have to fight someone who's a lot stronger than you, it helps if you're, if you're clever and smart and humor is all about that, right? So the, the LDS church, Mormonism, they're, they're a big fucking deal, right? They are a powerful force in the world and they're less powerful if we can laugh at them. And so I intend to make them less powerful. So I'm going to laugh at them as much as I can. I think that's the way to go. Well, thanks again, Ben. I really appreciate it. Ah, I appreciate you. Thanks, Lindsay. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.